You know, Christmas is not for children. Christmas is for sinners. Thomas John Carlyle put it this way, a Christmas basket God brought that night and gently laid on our poor doorstep. He rang the bell but did not run away. Savior is this hour's Christmas word. The simple workaday shepherds were told by an angel, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That is Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And when you think about that angelic statement of truth, when you think about that statement and the whole concept of a Savior, some implications flow out of that. Like, one, persons need saving. Two, persons can't save themselves. Three, better than what's now is possible in God's will. Four, someone is stronger and someone is wiser than us. Five, rescue is possible. Six, rescue is absolutely necessary. On this last point of implication, that rescue is absolutely necessary, Scripture uses words like perish and lake of fire and perdition and weeping and gnashing of teeth and the second death, and Sheol, the pit, and Hades. And Scripture uses the word hell and Gehenna, which is the burning garbage dump, and Abaddon, destruction. Because Scripture uses these words, it tells us that rescue is absolutely necessary for each one of us. Contrary to some liberal churches and liberal theologians, every day and every way, we are not getting better and better. In fact, what is happening is the world is watching Fox News and CNN and making daisy chains while they're destined to go over the Grand Canyon of hell. We need a Savior because the alternative is grim. Very grim. Actually, the sad reality is the sincere and the tribesmen in the jungle who have never heard Christ's name and the so-called good people will be in hell if they don't accept and trust the only provided Savior. You have an argument with that. You have an argument with Jesus. For Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, Jesus was either a liar, he knew that wasn't true and he said it, or he was a lunatic, he thought it was true but it wasn't true, or he is Lord. His life and ministry, his miracles, his teaching, his fulfillment of prophecies all tell us emphatically without any equivocation that he is Lord. He is not a liar. He is not a lunatic. He is Lord. Is he your Lord? Friends, Savior is our Christmas word this morning. And if there was any way, if there is any other way to be saved from sin, why would God the Father have sent 
and sacrificed his son to offer a pass out of hell. Because there are no other ways. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It can't be the shedding of guilty blood. It has to be the shedding of innocent blood. Jesus Christ fused humanity and deity so that he could have blood to shed, and he could have innocent, righteous, holy blood to shed. Because Scripture tells us, as we said last week, that in both the Old and the New Testaments, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we praise God this Christmas morning that he has provided once for all time an all-sufficient Savior. And praise God that we who know the Savior by faith, we have the privilege of presenting and giving that same Savior to everyone we meet, are we? Everybody in the Bahamas is a Christian. Really? You think that? They may know religion. They may know the language of the church. They may believe in God, but the devil believes in God. And so because we have a Savior by personal faith, we have the privilege, but also, church, we have the responsibility of telling everyone we meet about this Savior who died for them and rose for them and wants to be their Savior from sin, and his blood can be applied to their sin debt to God. Do you tell people? Here's another thing. No one should have been surprised that God gave us an all-sufficient Savior. No one should have been surprised, whether the Jewish or Gentile, whether it was the Old Testament or the New Testament. If you read the Bible, if you read the book carefully, intelligently, and simply, and take it at face value, you should not be surprised that God lovingly and graciously provided us a Savior. That's what the Old Testament says, and that's what the New Testament says. One of the most common Hebrew names for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. The name appears a whopping 6,823 times. 6,823 times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, appears. Do you know what it means? Yahweh stands for God being the eternal one, without beginning and without ending. Yahweh also means he's the active and self-existent one. It means that he is the covenant-keeping God. It means that he's the holy one who, by definition, hates sin. That's what Yahweh means. But there's one other aspect of the name Yahweh and what it means. It means that Yahweh stands for God being sinner's redeemer. And 6,823 times in the Old Testament, people who read it and who read it still see that God is the provided Savior in God the Son, Jesus. Oh, yeah. No one should have been surprised that Yahweh would provide an all-sufficient Savior. Additionally, because the name Moses in Hebrew means one drawn out, and Joshua meant Yahweh is salvation, and Goel in the book of Ruth meant close relative who saves and rescues and redeems, and Elisha meant God is salvation. You're getting the point? There was many uh, reminders that Yahweh, Redeemer, Savior, God, had people in his service given names that reflected his saviorhood, his heart to save. It goes on, Isaiah meant salvation is of the Lord. Nehemiah meant Yahweh consoles. Job meant 
one who turns back to God. Hosea meant salvation. Nahum meant consolation. Zechariah meant Yahweh remembers. And in Hebrew, remembers doesn't mean tie a string around God's finger so he won't forget. In Hebrew, remembers mean God's acts on behalf of people who can't act on behalf of themselves, like Hannah who could not have a baby. God remembered Hannah in her infertility, and God gave Hannah the baby Samuel as a miracle. And so the Old Testament student, the Old Testament casual reader, should have seen that salvation was on God's heart and that God would provide a Savior, Messiah. That was written on the wall of the Old Testament, and it was written in very large, bold letters. But what about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, the very sweet name Jesus means Jehovah is Savior. Jesus means Jehovah is Savior. This Savior motif, this Savior theme, this Savior plotline, this Savior story continues from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that God did send to the world his Savior should tell us that human beings' biggest problem is sin, as the children said in the story time. Separation from God is our biggest problem. Transgression, trespass, rebellion, moral failure, depravity, unholiness, these are our biggest problems in the Bahamas. These are our biggest problems in the world. These are our biggest problems in our hearts. And because sin is our biggest problem, God sent us a Savior. You know, if mankind's biggest problem was enlightenment, then God would have sent a philosopher. And if our biggest problem was ignorance, then God would have sent an educator. And if our biggest problem was poverty, God would have sent a billionaire. If it was oppression, he would have sent an army general. If finishing out of the medals in the Olympics was our biggest problem, he would have sent an Olympic committee. If our biggest problem was lack of time, he would have sent us a time consultant. If it was greed, a philanthropist. If it was sickness, a doctor. If it was lack of innovation, he would have sent us an inventor. If our biggest problem was hunger, he would have sent us a farmer. If it was boredom, he would have sent us a movie maker. If our biggest need was a lack of a proper role model, God would have sent us an astronaut. If our biggest problem was injustice, maybe God would have sent us a lawyer or a judge. If our biggest problem was cultural refinement, then God perhaps would have sent us a poet or a painter or a sculptor. And if our biggest problem was an overall explanation, then perhaps God would have sent us a scientist. And if our biggest problem, as the liberals would tell us in Christianity, was a lack of an example, then God would have sent us a fitness model. But God didn't send us any of those things. Instead, God sent us a Savior, meek and mild. We esteemed him not. Ordinary to look at in physical appearance, in his humanity Jewish. Because our biggest problem wasn't his sin and transgression and falling short and rebellion and trespass and independence of God and rebellion against God and moral filth, God sent us a Savior. In mercy, God sent us a Savior. 
Isn't it interesting that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, one singular word was selected by the angelic host, and God the Holy Spirit wrote it down for posterity. In Luke 2, verse 11, the angels are speaking in the choir, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Oh, what a beautiful title Savior is. Oh, what a clear job description Savior is. Oh, what a wonderful, everlastingly important mission being a Savior is. And I think it's worth noting this morning that Luke 2.11 doesn't use a king, although a king was born. It doesn't say Messiah, although the Messiah was born. It doesn't say a rabbi, although a teacher was born. It doesn't say an example was born, although he was an example. It doesn't even say the Son of God or the Son of Man was born. Oh, that's certainly true of Jesus, too. It says a Savior. A Savior is born to you in the city of David. You know, some liberal Christians in liberal churches and pulpits wrongly think that Jesus is only our good example. You ask them who Jesus is, and they say he's our example. They don't say Savior because they don't believe they need a Savior because they don't believe sin separates them from a holy God. Everybody gets to heaven in their mindset. When you see Jesus as merely reduce him to a good example, do you know what it's like? It's like God giving us a jigsaw puzzle of time on earth and how to get to heaven gives us a jigsaw puzzle, and Jesus is the lid of the box. Jesus is just a picture on the lid of the box to these guys. And you assemble a puzzle yourself or you don't. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to be our example only. That's selling him short. That's like God saying... Okay, mankind is in a skyscraper like on 9-11 where it's exploding and there's flames engulfing all the floors of the skyscraper and God sends a map. Here are the fire escapes. Here's a map. You kidding me? There's a fire on Shirley Street coming to church. You see that? If there was someone in that structure, and I don't know if there was or wasn't, I was praying there wasn't, but the firefighters wouldn't hand them a map and say, you're going to get yourself out of the flames. God didn't send us a map. God sent us a firefighter, a savior. Praise his name. You know, liberal Christians, those that don't take the Bible seriously, those who don't believe there's a literal heaven or hell, that Jesus is a literal savior, people like that, they uh, discount the miraculous and they don't want to see anything supernatural. If they can't explain it in their heads, with their eyes and their senses, they don't think it's true. My uh, wife Beth's grandmother, fine born-again lady in heaven many years now, she played the organ at her church. And this particular Sunday, uh, there was a liberal seminary that was feeding her church and other churches in her denomination, liberal graduates of the, of the seminary who didn't really believe the Bible being God's word and didn't believe in the miraculous, didn't believe in the supernatural. So she told us that one day she was playing the organ in her church for one of these liberal theologian guest preachers, and he was preaching on the feeding of the 5,000. And do you know what he told them? He said that Jesus Christ fed the 5,000 with his magnetic personality, that he was such a magnetic person that they all walked a long distance and bought their own lunches and then came back. She was by the organ with a, with a fake tree like this, 
And as he was saying that Jesus fed the 5,000 with his magnetic personality, she, she just she can't, can't help herself. She's shaking this tree. She's shaking this tree in disagreement. And as soon as the benediction was pronounced, she went up to this preacher, this young preacher, and said, where in the world did you learn that Jesus fed the 5,000 by his magnetic personality? They walked a long distance and got their own lunches. Where did you learn that? At the seminary just down the road. And Beth's grandma turned to Beth's dad said, you go to Dallas Seminary. I wanted you to go to that seminary, but I can see that's no place for you to go. That's what liberals do. They say the world didn't need a Savior. God didn't need a Savior. God didn't send a Savior. He sent an example. He sent a jigsaw puzzle lid. He sent maps out of a burning building. No, he didn't. He sent a Savior. And that Savior is a supernatural miracle, and we mark that Christmas morning when we say God was born to a virgin. You know, the concept of Savior pops up so many times and in so many ways in God's Word. Just a sampling. God asking Abraham to sacrifice his special son, Isaac. The nation of Israel scapegoats. Remember, there were two goats in the camp of Israel. There were lots taken, and, and one goat was slaughtered and its blood sacrifice temporarily covered the nation's sin and the scapegoat was the other goat and it was set free to picture that this nation's sin was looked after and taken away with the goat that lived. Salvation and Savior themes are all through the Bible. Or old Simeon's words in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. You can look it up this afternoon, perhaps. He said, now I can go, I can die, because God's promised to let me see his Savior, the consolation of Israel. I've laid eyes on the baby, the Savior. Or John the Baptist's words, when Jesus' public ministry was emerging, he points to Jesus on the banks of the River Jordan, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, yes, salvation and Savior is rife through all of God's word, Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament Hebrew word which translates Savior is Yasha. Yasha. Yasha has a range of meanings. It means avenger, Defender, deliverer, helper, preserver, rescuer, one who brings salvation and victory, and Yasha means Savior. And with the repetition of this Hebrew word Yasha, the Old Testament consistently looked forward to Jesus Christ. And today, Christmas morning, 2016, with a completed Bible, we know that Jesus Christ alone is God's rescuer, God's preserver and helper, God's deliverer, God's defender, God's avenger, the one to bring salvation and victory. We know this Christmas morning that Jesus is the only Savior for the world, the only one we'll ever get. During the future tribulation, the world will be duped to think that Antichrist is a Savior, that he won't be the true Savior. And so, Savior is our Christmas word this morning. And when you think with me this Christmas season about Jesus being your Savior who's been miraculously born, please remember to pray for the lost and your family who come to your table this afternoon to eat the ham and the turkey and the macaroni and cheese. 
The people who pull up to your table this afternoon, or maybe not today, another day in the Christmas season, who don't know Jesus as Savior, will you pray for their salvation? Will you invite them to trust Christ after you explain the gospel to them? If you don't, who will? It was David Smithers who asked a challenging question. He asked this, Is hell larger today than it was yesterday because many of us have failed to pray and share our faith? Is hell larger today than it was yesterday because many of us have failed to pray and to share our faith? You know, I want you to imagine yourself to be in a real predicament, a life-endangering predicament. I want you to imagine yourself being in a pit of quicksand. I want you to imagine yourself sinking fast in that quicksand. The Hindu holy man yells, Die and reincarnate yourself. Buddha yells, think yourself out of it. Muhammad yells, work yourself out of it. Jesus gets in the quicksand with you and lifts you out of it. All world religions are not the same. We're seeing that the Hebrew word for Savior is Yasha. Now, what about the New Testament? What is the main word in the New Testament for Savior? It is a Greek word, of course. It is soter. Soter. It kind of sounds like Savior. Soter. It means Savior or Deliverer. And what we are seeing is that the New Testament carries along the Old Testament's concept of Savior and Deliverer forward. And in the New Testament... It reveals God's Savior to have an identity that he was born of a virgin, that he is the Son of God, that he is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. We would accurately conclude, therefore, that the word and the notion of Savior is about as central to the Bible as your brain is to your bodies. The concept of salvation and of God providing a Savior because we cannot save ourselves is about as central to the Bible and the church as it is to breathe air. We don't have a Bible if we don't have a Savior. We don't have forgiveness if we don't have a Savior. We don't have a home in heaven if we don't have a Savior. We don't have any hope on earth or for the afterlife if we don't have a Savior. Christmas is all about the Savior being born so that he could die for sin. There was a shadow over the manger. It was the shadow of the cross. The shadow of the cross was cast over the manger. Jesus was born to die. Christmas, therefore, is about the Savior and not Santa. Christmas is about deliverance from sin and not deliverance of presence. Christmas is about Messiah and not about mashed potatoes. Christmas is about Emmanuel and not about iPods. Christmas shows us that Egypt wasn't the biggest problem for Israel. Sin was. Christmas frees the Israelites from slaughtering animals to temporarily cover their sins, and Christmas shows us, church members, that Roman oppression and religious definition wasn't the biggest problem in the New Testament, nor is it the biggest problem in the current day. Our biggest problem back then and our biggest problem today is sin. 
Christmas should have Yasha and Soter written all over it. Mav Rosenthal, the former director of the Friends of Israel ministry, wrote this poem. It's called Mary Had the Little Lamb. Mary had the little lamb who lived before his birth, self-existent son of God, from heaven he came to earth. Mary had the little lamb see him in yonder stall, virgin-born son of God to save man from the fall. Mary had the little lamb, obedient son of God. Everywhere the father led, his feet were sure to trod. Mary had the little lamb crucified on the tree. The rejected son of God, he died to set men free. Mary had the little lamb, men placed him in the grave, thinking they were done with him to death. He was no slave. Mary had the little lamb ascended, now is he. All work on earth is ended, our advocate to be. Mary had the little lamb, mystery to behold. From the lamb of Calvary, a lion will unfold. When the day star comes again of this, be very sure, it won't be the lamb-like silence, but with the lion's roar. It's truth. Savior. One of my favorite spots in my home country of Canada is a vast body of water, not as vast as the sea, of course, but for inland water, it's vast, a vast body of water called Georgian Bay. It is the easternmost arm of Lake Huron, and of course, Lake Huron is one of the great lakes which America and Canada share. That's one of my favorite places because our Elliott family has had a beach house on a white sand beach on Georgian Bay for over 70 years. How vast is Georgian Bay? It is 200 miles north to south and 50 miles west to east. This means that Georgian Bay is 5,800 square miles of unpredictable, fresh, gorgeous shades of blue and turquoise, clear, cold water, fresh water. Back in 2007, two teenage girls launched out from the most southerly beach of Georgian Bay in an inflatable dinghy. Their plan was to sunbathe. They neglected to tell anyone on shore that what they were doing, and they fell asleep. The wind and the current silently pulled them far out into the bay. No one realized that they were missing for 28 hours. Early in their ordeal, they broke one of the two paddles they had on board. And three days, and two very long cold nights later, a police search with boats and aircraft and ATVs found them alive on an unpopulated island located some 42 miles north of where they put their dinghy into Georgian Bay. These two teens desperately needed a savior. They had no food. They had on only swimming suits. They had no clothes for the cold nights. They had severe sunburn. They had no cell phone. They had no GPS system, and they had but one paddle. Their story reminds me of the great old hymn, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. 
Souls in danger look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He your savior wants to be. Be saved today. When those two teenage girls jumped into their dinghy, they had no idea whatever of how vulnerable they were. When they laid back and shut their eyes and drank in the sun's rays and fell asleep in the warmth of a summer day, they had no sense whatever that they were drifting toward extreme life-threatening peril. Sin is like that, just like that. It's so silent. Sin is so soothing. Sin is warm. It is cozy. It is giddy. Sin lulls the conscience asleep. It seems so reasonable. Sin promises to be such fun. Many others around us are doing it, and sin loves to have company. The more, the merrier. Sin will make us more attractive, we think, like a nice suntan. And often, sin doesn't inform anyone else. Sin lets us talk about boys. It looks like there's an easy way back from where we started. It takes us to places we never imagined we will be, and sin takes us to places we never want to be. But sin sucks us in, because the one who mangers in sin is a liar, a deceiver, an accuser, and a murderer. Sin brings to sunburn pain. It brings us to shivering aloneness and cold. Sin isolates us from safety. It is relentless. It is calculated. Sin always costs more than we thought we would have to pay. Sin is more than we can afford to pay. Sin scares the joy out of us eventually, and it breaks off the means of control that we thought we had over it. Sin becomes a harsh and enslaving master. It squeezes us, it corners us, it shipwrecks us, it starves us, and it moves us to death. Were it not for a loving, all-knowing, compassionate, never-giving-up search from heaven, sin would take us down, down, in fact, as far as creation goes. So listen, my friends. The God, the God, the Father, has not just provided us with a Savior, we're thankful he has, but he has also provided a whole wide world with a Savior. May we wake up and get involved in that program. And may we be used of God to wake other people up who are slumbering on the dinghy of their sin and going to their deaths. May we care. May we speak up. May we get involved because they are not headed to some unpopulated island in Georgian Bay, Ontario. They are headed to a Christless eternity of torment in a literal hell. Doesn't sound like a Christmas Day service. What better time to share this? It was Donald Gray Barnhouse who said, The church was not left in this world to perfume the dung heap of fallen humanity, but to take out one by one, those who will be saved from the coming destruction, end of quote. Wake lost people up. Warn lost people of their drift away from the Lord. Throw them the only life preserver they have available, Jesus Christ, person and finished work. Throw them the life preserver. 
and let's get on it now. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing. We're going to sing a, a hymn of testimony, a hymn of invitation. Actually, it's not a hymn. It's a little chorus of testimony, of invitation, and of commitment. And what I'm going to do is a reverse kind of thing. If we sing this song, and this is your commitment, I want you to sit down. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. If you mean it, sit down. Sing with me. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Savior. We thank you that not only we have uh, an escape, a deliverance from hell, as wonderful as that is, but we have a responsibility. We have a gospel. We have a Holy Spirit that emboldens us and gives us words and wisdom and love and compassion for lost people. Oh, God, may we not hoard salvation in 2017, but may we speak it, may we live it to the glory of your name, and may per precious persons in the sphere and contact of our networks of influence Come to know Christ as Savior, whom to know is life eternal. May we let our light shine. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. And as little light said, amen.